0: Well, welcome to week one of On the Road. That was a really cool intro. I'm not sure I'm cool enough for that intro, actually, but uh, what a great intro. In fact, there's a road behind me. I feel like, does it look like I'm running now in place, like like Forrest Gump? No? Okay. Well, glad you guys are here. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors, and we're so pumped that you're here. And when we think about that phrase, On the Road, I think about the Willie Nelson song, right? On the Road again. You guys know that one? The young people are like, I don't know what you're talking about right now, right? So, there's a lot of phrases on the road that happen in songs. And so roads are a lot in songs. I think about, like, boys to men, the end of the road. That's a great song, right? Guys, like, like tears come, you're in a corner crying, you broke up. But it's an amazing song, right? For you country fans, God bless the broken road by Rascal Flats. That guy sings higher than any man should be able to. But what a great song, right? And then the great song, hit the road, Jack. You guys know it, hit the road, Jack. I like how you guys started and then, like, it just tapered off. Like, you're like, I'm done. I can't can't sing anymore, right? So lots of great music references, right? But beyond that, think about how roads play a significant part in our lives. Like, for those of you that got married, maybe you got married in the church or somewhere else, the road you drove home on, you probably remember that road or the road up to your wedding day. Or maybe for those of you that are parents, when you had that first child, like the third kid, you don't remember anything, right? But the first kid, right? You remember the road that you drove home from the, from the, the hospital from, right? you probably never driven as safely as you did that day. Third kid, you're like speeding home. It's not a big deal. But that first kid, the road you drove, maybe, maybe you think about when you grew up, the street you grew up on. Maybe you remember that road. Maybe you remember um, just the fact that roads are significant. So you take a road to get to work every day. You take a road to get here to church, to a road to get to a store or school, wherever you go. Roads play a significant part in our lives. And they also play a significant part in scripture. And so we're going to talk about for the next four weeks, some, just a few stories that happened on the road throughout scripture. And so if you want to join me, you can go to LexCity.info, click on message note there at the top and kind of follow along with the message today. And so we're going to talk about a phrase that happened on the road that we talk about even in our culture today. And the, and the word is good Samaritan. And we hear that phrase quite a bit today. It's a phrase that people know about today, even though it's from Scripture. And I think we use it maybe not the way that Jesus always intended us for us to use it, but we use it in our culture today nonetheless. And so I think when you look it up in the, in the Urban Dictionary, just the dictionary, it basically says, when someone does a, something kind for a stranger unnecessarily, that would consider that to be a good Samaritan. And so we know that people sometimes in their living they do this every day. So think about firefighters and paramedics and lifeguards and first responders. They help strangers out for a living every day. They would be good Samaritans. And so there's still kindness from the world. In fact, a few weeks ago, I was in a restaurant. I went to the bathroom. And like some of you, I pulled my phone out in the restroom. Don't don't judge me. You do it too, okay? And so, and I left my phone in the bathroom. Bad, bad mistake. And so somebody must have seen me. They found me. They came to my table and delivered my phone to me. They could have stole my iPhone, but they gave it to me. All right? Don't judge me. Hashtag multitasking in the bathroom. Okay, you do it too. So here's the deal. They were a good Samaritan. They brought me my phone. Think about when you, maybe you've had a flat tire on the side of the road and someone's come and helped you. You Probably consider them a good Samaritan. But as we look at the story today, I want us to know it's a little bit more than the way that we use it today in our culture. So let's dive in. Luke chapter 10 is what we're going to be looking at today. Verse 25. On one occasion, the expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so the purpose of the story as we read this isn't necessarily to inspire this guy. It was actually to enlighten this guy, to put a mirror up to himself to actually tell him, you know what, you're actually no good Samaritan. And so you're not as good as you think you are. The man was a lawyer. The text called him an expert in the law. And don't think like defense attorney that helps you with the judge. This is more of like an expert seminary teacher, like a religious expert is what they're referencing here in Scripture. And so because of that, he was someone who would know better than anybody what someone had to do to inherit eternal life. And so this guy spent his entire day and night thinking about this topic. What does God require of us? What does one have to do to achieve wholeness? What does someone have to do for God to be pleased with them? What does someone have to do to get to heaven? So this person knew that. And so they were actually, this person was trying to test these other translations say he was trying to trap or trick Jesus. Jesus. And so he and the rest of his colleagues, they heard Jesus preaching what they would call this message of, like, the kingdom, this easy belief system, this easy, like, loosey-goosey belief system that says it doesn't matter if you're a prostitute, doesn't matter if you're a tax collector, as long as you believe in Jesus, you will be saved. And they're saying, look at the son of a man lifted up on the cross like Moses lifted up the servant, the serpent. You didn't have to keep all the laws. This guy was saying, we have to like pray twice a day, do all these things fast, all these things. All you have to do is believe in Jesus and you can be forgiven. And they didn't like that. It wasn't enough for them. They didn't like this message of grace that Jesus was preaching to them. It nauseated them because the gospel doesn't allow them to be the hero of the story. The gospel always puts Jesus in the role of Superman, us in the role of Superman of the damsel in distress. Like, Jesus does the heavy lifting for us in the gospel. And they didn't like that because they wanted something to do, something to be proud of, something to go look at us. They wanted wanted God to look down from the heaven and say, like, wow, look at you. I'm so lucky to have you on my team. And so they didn't like that Jesus was preaching this message of grace and just know you don't have to earn it. Just come and be a part of it. Because they wanted to puff up their chest and shine their merit badges and So they didn't like this at all. And so basically this guy comes to Jesus and he's basically saying, hey, let's have a battle of wits. I'm going to ask you a tough question because I want to trap you in this. Because he thought he was going to say this, that, hey, you only have to just believe in me. And then he was going to trap him with all the Ten Commandments and things Moses said. And he was going to give all these things to trap Jesus. But you probably shouldn't try to trap Jesus. It's not maybe the smartest thing to do. One of the things I love about Jesus is that he, um, he's like the original Alex Trebek. Remember the guy that did Jeopardy, right? Jesus is amazing at asking questions. Like you ask him a question and he asks you a question back instead of answering your question. So he answers your question with a question. And so here's what happened in verse 26. He says, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? So he throws it back on the guy. He didn't like this. He's going, wait, you're trying to use Moses against me. Moses is my star witness. You can't do this to me. And so he, is, he wasn't prepared for that. So then he answers in this in verse 27. He answered, love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is thinking, right, go do that. If you can do that, you would inherit eternal life. Love God perfectly and love your neighbor as yourself. Do this and you will live. In fact, he says that. In verse 28, you've answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Which, of course, is kind of like a backhanded compliment because there is a catch to it. When Jesus says, do this and you will live, he knows the man is not actually doing that right now. If you could love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, then yes, you would be justified before God. But, of course, you have not done that and no one is capable of doing that. So then it gets awkward, and Jesus kind of turns it, and he says this. And the guy responds, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who exactly is my neighbor? Which I think is like a pretty solid question. We ask ourselves that question, right? Who is our neighbor? You can't be talking about everybody that I come in contact with, right, God? It can't be that. Who do I have to love like I love me? Because there ain't nobody that we love so much as we love some of ourselves, right? Right? Jesus responds to that question that the man had asked him, who is my neighbor with what they call the Socratic method style argument, which is basically this. You ask a question, then you tell a story that allows the person to find themselves in the story, and then you end it with another question. Jesus was great at this kind of thing. And so he does it in the famous story, one of the greatest stories ever told, and he basically is telling the story to tell this extra the law, you're actually no good Samaritan. But he also lets the man find himself in the story. And so there's this guy, presumably a Jewish man, who was headed from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, most likely this man, um, he lives in the Jericho region, which is like a palm tree kind of area, nice and cool kind of area. And he had gone to Jerusalem to either worship or do business. And it says this in verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. Now, this particular stretch of road, everybody that heard the story, they knew this road. And so they were thinking, man, I hope this guy wasn't traveling alone. I hope it wasn't late at night. I hope he wasn't unarmed. This was like a really bad stretch of road. It was known to be a place where people would get like mugged and they would get carjacked or at the time like cameljacked or whatever they got jacked in, okay? And this road was like 17 miles long. It was notorious for being a bad part of town. The stretch was actually nicknamed the way of blood. You don't want to be on a road nicknamed the way of blood. That's not really smart. And it says, not only was the man robbed, but he was also, it says, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. You can almost hear Jesus saying this, but fortunately, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. It's like the start of every joke you've ever heard, right? So a priest walks into a bar and he gets, this guy gets mugged, all right? Similar, right? And of course, a priest would be the number one most likely person to stop and help. He sees this Jewish man lying there struggling to breathe. He's in danger and a priest, a man who represents God, a man who's supposed to be known for compassion, of course he would stop. Stop. He's coming along the way. No doubt he probably just finished serving in the temple. He's probably headed home. He's probably just filled with heavenly thoughts. Of course he's going to stop and help this guy. Only the text says he passed on the other side of the road. Now, I've seen pictures of this path. So when you think of a road, don't think about an interstate where there's 20 or 30 yards and you, couldn't, you could miss the guy in the ditch over here. Like, here's a picture of, of the road from Jerusalem to Jericho right here. That would be really hard to miss someone on the side of the road, right? You almost have to step over a person to, to quickly go on your way and not, and not stay for that person. And then next comes the Levite. And Levites were kind of known to be worship leaders. So picture like Josh Sadlin, our worship leader. He's walking down the road and he sees this guy. And this is what happens. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. So the Levite ignores him too. Josh would not have done that. Josh was a big man. He would have picked him up his shoulder and just carried him the 17 miles. It would have been fine. But this guy goes past him just like the priest did. So now you have the priest, you have the Levite, literally people who are known as being the hands and feet of God for benevolence. So as people would bring their tithes and offerings to the temple, these guys would take that money and they would kind of manage that and they would help people that they saw that were in need. Similar, we have a thing at our church called the Lake City Cares Fund and that's what we use it for. We, people get, if they lost their job or they're on a hard time, we help them pay their bills, we help them do things like that. This is what they were responsible for doing in their time as well. So literally their best shot to help the people were these two guys. These two men who both by nationality and by profession were obligated to help, but they did nothing. And I'm sure they had a million reasons why they didn't stop. Maybe they were going, you know what, I've been working all day. i got to get home to my family. It's a long road home. And so they're traveling home. Or maybe they're thinking, you know what, this guy on the side of the road is a trap. Like the robbers left him here because they want to get us too. And so, like, we can't stop. And so, because what if we get killed? Because then who's going to now be in the temple? Who's now going to do God's work? And so this sound logic said, we're going to lead this guy here. We're going to head along our way. But here's where sto- the story turns. It says in verse 33, But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. And maybe you know this, but some historical context Jews and Samaritans, like, hated each other. Like, it was a deep-seated hatred. In fact, they used to be a part of the same family years earlier. And then some things happened, and that family became a feud, and they became separated because they thought, this is the way you're supposed to worship God. And they said, no, this is the way you're supposed to worship God. And so they hated each other. And I can't even quite understand like the hatred, like think about in Kentucky, like if you're a Kentucky fan and you're a Louisville fan, like think that, okay? Like, like the amount of hatred that happens between those two fan bases, like this is how much hate was happening in this story. Even Jesus' own disciples didn't like the Samaritans and they were always confused because Jesus would go to Samaria and he would not only preach there, but he would stay there among the people and they were always confused by this. And in John chapter 4 Jesus met this woman by the well in Samaria and by speaking to her he defied cultural bigotry as well as gender stereotypes and sexism he didn't care because he knew that he was creating every nation every tribe every 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 tongue coming together he that's what that was his goal that was the church he was building one of my favorite examples is this, in, in chapter 9, in, in Luke chapter 9, right before we're reading chapter 10 right now, Jesus told them, the to, disciples, go ahead to Samaria, prepare a place for us to stay, like find us some food, find us a hotel to stay at. And so they went and did this, and they couldn't find anyone, any Samarians that, w- that would keep them. They couldn't find anyone that would give them food, no one that would keep them there at all, and so they go back to Jesus, and they're like, hey, they don't like us here, they hate us. There's no one for us to say that no one wants to give us any food. So we have this idea. Here's what we think that we should do. And this was, this, was not just, this was James and John, like two of the three greatest disciples talking here. And they're annoyed. And so they come to Jesus and they say this in verse 54. Master, do you want us to call down a bolt of lightning down out of the sky and incinerate them? Like, would that be okay, Jesus? That feels like the appropriate response to this situation. And of course, he's like, of, of course not. Like, and they're going like, no, he wouldn't run us a room. Can we, permission to firebomb them, sir, please? And Jesus is going like, I came not to take life, but to give life. Like, what are you guys thinking? But that gives you a picture of the divide here between Jews and, Samar- and Samaritans. And so after the priest passes by, after the Levite passes by, the Samaritan comes and he did three things. And we should take note of these three things because if we can do these three things, this can literally change the world. If you call yourself a Christ follower and you can do these three things, we can change the world. And these are the three things. He took notice, he took pity, and he took action. The text says when he saw him, and that's where it begins, we have to see the problem. We have to open our eyes and see people in need. We have to see the crisis. We have to open our eyes and not be willing only to take notice what we have to be willing to take pity. The Bible says he took pity on the man. He saw him, but everything inside of him probably said, this guy wouldn't help me if we were in different positions. He wouldn't stop and take care of me. But then he asked the question, what if it were me? Like, what if that was me on the ground? But he chose to feel and say, you know what, this guy's a human. This man has worth. I'm going to stop. I'm going to take pity. And that's the key. It's empathizing. It's putting your feet in someone else's shoes. It's asking those difficult questions like, what would it be like for me if I was raised in that home? Under those conditions, in that place. Like, putting myself in that situation. And when he took notice, he was willing to take pity and he was on his way to becoming more like Jesus because the Bible says that Jesus was a man of sorrows and he was the weeping prophet. He was acquainted with grief. And one of the most common words that we talk about with Jesus and we describe his emotional state was the word compassion. And we sometimes think that that word compassion is like this nice, soft word. But the Greek definition of the word compassionate was actually more of of like a, like, This like, man, this deep like thing inside your gut when like your stomach hurts. You know, like when you see something on the news or you hear a story of like, of someone being physically or sexually assaulted and you get that feeling in your stomach or when you hear about a child that lost both their parents, it's that kind of knot in your stomach. It's that burden, it's that sorrow, it's that grief. It's more than just this nice word of compassion. That's what Jesus felt and that's what the Samaritan felt in this moment when he saw his enemy lying there and he was willing to say, what would it be like to be beaten and robbed and bludgeoned and be drowning in your own blood? And he took pity. But that's only a start because the next thing he did was the most crucial. He took action. And what did he do? In verse 34, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. So he got off his donkey, he took the oil and the wine, which which essentially is like a disinfectant and ointment. It was like hydrogen peroxide peroxide and neosporin. And he bandaged the wounds. And he put the injured man on his donkey, and now off they go. And the Samaritan is now walking, and the Jewish man is now on the donkey. So he didn't just give up his resources, he gave up his donkey, he gave up his time. We We learn later that he, had, he was in a hurry, he was probably a businessman, and so he had to leave, but he took the opportunity cost as well. At the time, it took him to do all of these things. And he spent the time to be present with the man, to encourage him, to pray for him, a complete and total stranger and his enemy. And when the Jewish man probably wakes up later and he learns that a Samaritan took care of him, he's probably going, what in the world? How did this happen? So think about that in modern culture today. The Samaritan is probably a lot like us. His life is probably really busy. He's got a business to run. He's got a family to take care of. He's got all these other obligations to do, but he stopped and he took the time and he was engaged and he's serving and he's caring and he took notice and he took pity and he took action. And I tell you, God will use that to change the world. But this is not the only point of the story, you see, because it isn't just a story about now go and be like the Good Samaritan. The story he was telling this extra law was saying this story tells you that you're no Good Samaritan and neither am I. And that's the point. It's not reading this and then trying a little bit harder or being motivated by guilt. It's not about that. You see, this man was being told the only way to get to heaven was by his own admission is to be so good and to love God so well and to love your neighbor so selflessly that you love him more than you love yourself. And every neighbor is now even people that you hate and that hate you. Listen, we don't love the people who love us as well as this man loved the one who hated him. The point of the story was so that the guy with desperation would realize it's impossible to do it on your own. It's impossible to be saved on your own. He was hopefully going to come to the place that Paul would describe in Romans 3.20 when he says, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified. The point was for this man who started out so smug thinking I'm going to trap Jesus and now he's actually really thinking like, what does it take to get to heaven Because the reality in this story, Jesus is the good Samaritan. He's the one who came down from heaven. He's the one who came down from the donkey. He's the one with oil in one hand and wine in the other hand. The wine representing his blood, which was spilled for the forgiveness of our sins. The oil representing the spirit of God that comes upon us through the Holy Spirit. You see, the story is not just about don't be a bad guy, love like a good guy. It's actually, you're a dead guy and, God, and, and this God guy came so he could do what we could never do. He found you when you were half dead, dead spiritually, but alive physically, but hanging on in the gutter, unable to help yourself. And he was willing to bandage you and put you where he should be by becoming where you should be. He was willing to go to the earth to bring you out of death into life. Jesus is a good Samaritan. He is the only one who can help us. This message isn't just meant to lead us to a place to walk into the streets of Lexington or walk into the streets wherever you live and say, I need to be a good neighbor. But actually, the sermon's hopefully going to get you to come to a place where you go, I need a good neighbor. And Jesus is willing to be that for you, and that's why he came. And once we've had that revelation that we're the ones lying in the road, the only logical thing is to find yourself in the story and the place where God wants you to serve. I don't know about you, but whenever I read scripture, whenever when I hear a pastor preach on scripture, I try to identify myself with someone in the story. Like I hear that story and I go, who can I relate to? Who am I most like in my life right now? And when you read stories, you're like, am I David? Am I Goliath? Am I James? Am I Peter? Like, who am I in the story? And this one's complicated because as you read the Good Samaritan story, like we would love to put ourselves in the role of Good Samaritan, right? But that's Jesus. Oftentimes, it's hard to admit, and I know for myself personally, I'm the Levite and I'm the priest where I miss opportunities that God places right in front of me. And I know for sure that at one point, I was the man lying in the gutter, unable to save myself, and I was saved only by the grace of God through his son, Jesus. But I think that the... God's spirit is calling us to all see ourselves in this story today as the role of the innkeeper. That's where God wants us to be serving Jesus because he, Jesus does the saving, right? Like he brings people to us. I hate it when people say, I, I saved this person. No, you may have introduced him to Jesus, but Jesus does the saving, like that, our role is, is to introduce people to him. Our role is when they come to church or when they come into our lives is to be like the innkeeper, to see and go, you know what, I'm gonna take care of you. I wanna bandage your soul. I wanna help you achieve wholeness. I'm gonna help you get to that place. But anyone his son brings into the inn, brings into the church, brings into this house, we then are to be the innkeepers, springing into action to do what Jesus has already been doing, which is doing the first aid, helping them in any way that we can and the correlation of the story are cool because then when Jesus said the innkeeper was to do until he returns, how can we not see that Jesus in the story is the good Samaritan when he says, I will return, and when I do, I want to find you aiding and serving and helping those that I came to save. So we're then to take anybody Jesus brings to us and we're to do everything we can to help them, to serve them to wholeness. You see, because only God can forgive sin. We find forgiveness of sin when we come to God in prayer, but the Bible says that through each other's prayers, we can become whole, we can become healed. Ask God to forgive you, but confess your sins to one another that you might be healed. So as we close, I'm gonna give us just two things today. Like if we are to be the innkeeper, if we're to be the in, how do we do that? What are things we need to know to do that? So here are the two takeaway points. Number one, what we have, we've been given. The Samaritan handed the innkeeper two denarius, which essentially boils down to like sixty days of hotel fees. Archaeologists actually went back and they found like rates for these inns and they they figured out that basically for one night it was one thirty second of a denarius. So basically what that tells me is if he gave him enough days for six or enough money for sixty days, this guy was really sick. And he was saying, use this money to care for this individual, nurse him back to health because I have to go. Now, the innkeeper was given that money for a purpose. Use what I've given you to help this man. Everything that God has given to us is from him. He owns it all anyways. The breath in our lungs, the talents we've been given, our opportunities that we've had, the schools that we've we've got to go to. And some of you may be thinking, no, 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 Zach, I'm a self-made man. And I would just say to you, like, which part of yourself did you make, man? I think everything God's given us is a gift, And the tithe and the giving back acknowledges every time I receive a gift, if I give the first and the best back to God, I'm telling you, I'm telling him that he owns it all. You've given me everything. I honor you as the owner. I'm the steward. I'm just returning the first and the best. That there might be food in the house. Because, guys, I want to see this place full. I want to see our online stuff go everywhere. I want to see our kids sitting, our Lexington youth, I want to see them raising up the next generation of passionate Christ followers and leaders for the next generation. I want to see us be for Lexington and be for whatever community that you're watching in today. I want to see us be so generous that it's going across the world to our mission partners as well. Because through our generosity, we can say, I honor you, God. Do your work with what you gave me that I might bandage a wounded world. But I don't stop there because the second takeaway truth is this. What we give will be rewarded. What we give will be rewarded. The Samaritan man gave the innkeeper two denarius just to treat him, but if it costs more than that, whatever you spend above and beyond that, it's up to you. Use your imagination. I'll reimburse you when I return. Jesus says, I'm coming and my reward is with me. And what is he going to reward? Whatever we go above and beyond things he's called us to do. As much as we can dream up, God, I want to say yes to the vision. I want to accelerate the vision. I want to help pay off debt. I want to get ahead. I want the church to be the head and not the tail. And beyond that, to the extent that we have the vision that the world needs wine and the world needs oil, they need to know about the love of Jesus and that he came and his blood is for the forgiveness of our sins. They need to know the spirit of God can come upon them. I want to see you do that in the world, God. So above and beyond, I'm doing that. Knowing that when you return, you'll bless us. You'll be rewarding us for what we've done. Now, remember this, though. I'm not doing it for that. I'm not doing it for the reward and the blessing, but you promise that you're so good that above and beyond whatever I do, you'll reward me for that. And I love this revelation because it points us to the fact that our good deeds aren't done to earn God's love, but they're done because we have God's love. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says this, what the law demands of us, the gospel produces in us. What the law demands of us, the gospel produces in us. It's so powerful. It's like, it's like the teacher of the law thought, I'm going to earn God's favor for loving him and loving my neighbor. But if I think that way, I'll always think a minimum requirement. Like what, what's the minimum I have to do? Like how long does the paper have to be? How many words do I have to do, right? How many times do I have to show up? If it's going to do to earn something, it's always going to be how little can I get away with. But we're motivated by grace. The question becomes, how much can I accomplish? I don't have to do any of this and it will never change God's opinion of me. He'll never never look better or worse in his sight. But we want to reach the next generation. We want to do all that we can to be the in that God has called us to be. Because I don't one, at my end of my life, I don't want to look back and go, man, I had a wasted life. What is a wasted life? A wasted life or a wasted story is I've lived my life for me. And look at the end of my life, and I go, man, look what all that I accomplished. Versus going, like, look how I got to partner with God and his kingdom story for the world. As I close, there's this, uh, there's this guy named Jim Becker. And I came across a story from another pastor, and then I began to research this story. It inspired me so much because Jim Becker was a diehard Green Bay Packers fan. But Jim and his wife had 11 children. Just think about that. 11 children. So he couldn't afford to go to the Green Bay Packers games. And he found this blood bank that would give him $15 every time he gave a half a pint of blood. And so he went there and gave blood every time the Packers had a home game. And he would get the $15 and he would buy a ticket and go to the Packers game. And he would do it again the next week. He did this for 56 years. 56 years. And this is him, a picture of him being inducted into the the Packers Hall of Fame right here. And what he did not know all those years is that all the time he was sitting there giving his blood was that he had an often fatal disease called hemochromatosis, which essentially just means that too much iron gets built up in your body and they estimate that he would have been dead by the age of 45. He didn't know he had that. Do you know what the treatment for this disease is? It's giving blood once a week, which he did for 56 years. He did it because he thought he was putting him into a seat. What he did not know is that it was actually saving his life. Incredible story. Jesus says in Luke six thirty eight, give away your life. You'll find life given back, but not merely given back. Given back with bonus and blessing. Giving, not getting, is the way. Generosity begets generosity. Let's pray. Whether you're watching online or you're here in person, just do me a favor. Just close your eyes, bow your heads. Nobody looking around. This is just your time between you and God and the busyness of our lives and our weeks just to have a moment, just to sit in silence. And maybe you're here today or maybe you're watching online and you would say, you know what? I've never actually had a time in my life where I've surrendered my life to Jesus, where I said, you know what, Jesus, I want a relationship with you. There's an incredible verse in scripture in Romans 5, 8 that says, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. And I love that because what's cool about that scripture, is he's saying, you know what? I know what you've done. He knows what, all the sin in my life, all the sin in your life, all the things that maybe even no one else knows about that are only go on in our heads. He knows all that, and he loves us unconditionally anyways. And he takes it one step further. He wants a relationship with us through his son, Jesus. And so maybe you're here today in person or you're watching online and you would say, you know what, man, that's me. I've been trying to live my life for me my whole life and I'm discovering that I, I don't, that's not fulfilling my life. I don't, I'm not finding purpose in that. And I would say it's because there's only one thing that can, that can fill your heart and it's a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you been trying to fill it with your identity and, and how much you work or your success or identity and those things or your relationships or those kind of things. And, they, and they're all gonna, they all leave you empty at the end of the day. And there's only one thing that can fill your life completely and it's a relationship with Jesus. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, if that's you and you'd say, you know what? That's me. I wanna ask Christ to come into my life. I wanna stop living for myself. I'm gonna say a prayer right now and you can say something like this. You can kind of follow along. It's just you connecting to the very heart of God. Just say something like this. Say, dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that my sin separates me from you. But today, God, I ask you to come into my heart. I ask you to save me. I ask you to change me. I believe in your son, Jesus, that he died on the cross for my sins and that he beat death and rose again. I'm tired of living for myself. I want to start living for you. And with every head bowed, every eye closed, if that was you and you say, I, I prayed that prayer and I just want to acknowledge that today, just lift your hand up right now. Just lift your hand up just so I can see. No one else is looking around, just me. If that's you, just say, that's me. That's me. Awesome, I see your hand. I see your hand there as well. Anybody else? I see your hand, that's awesome. Anybody else that would say, that's me? I see your hand back there. That's really cool. Awesome. Jesus, thank you so much that you model in your scripture, God, that you are the good Samaritan. God, that you model that we are as a church need to be the inn and the innkeeper. And, and God, we need to understand what it looks like to, to, to bandage a wounded world. And God, thank you for those right now who just said yes to you, who stepped across that line of faith this morning. Those of you watching the line that made that decision as well, we're so excited for you. It's your name we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Can we just give it up for those people? That's incredible. And if you're watching online or here in person, we would love you to take a next step with us. Just go to lexcity.info. Or if you're watching online, you can click in the chat. But just click that I I prayed to receive Christ. And we just want to send you an email, send you some next steps um, that you can take. And we're just really, really excited about all that God is doing.